Hello, everyone, and welcome to I4CP's Next Practices Weekly podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Tom Stone, a senior research analyst at I4CP, the Institute for Corporate Productivity, the leading authority on next practices in human capital. The Next Practices Weekly podcast is one of the ways we share those practices with you by interviewing top HR leaders and facilitating discussion with the broader HR community on what high-performance organizations are doing differently with their people practices. From HR strategy to talent acquisition, learning and development, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and much more. A recent finding from I4CP found that high-performance organizations are six times more likely to have healthy cultures. What separates those organizations from others is not luck. It's the result of disciplined, intentional actions by the CEO, CHRO, and others. This topic of healthy cultures was the focus of a recent special edition of I4CP's Next Practices Weekly series, where I4CP's senior research analyst, Catherine Brecken, was joined by Mustafa Al-Rafi, former SVP of Human Capital at Majid Al-Fatam Retail, and by Christy Karandakar, EMD and Group People Officer at Unibail Rodamco Westfield. Listen now to their discussion of the defining characteristics of healthy cultures, the unhealthy habits of toxic cultures, and the key regional differences that global organizations need to consider. Good afternoon, everyone. As John mentioned, I'm Catherine Brecken. I'm a senior research analyst here at I4CP. I have the honor and privilege of working with a great team of researchers here and help do the analysis uh, for the study that we're going to talk today. Um, I also get the honor of introducing our guest today, Christy Karendikar, Executive Managing Director and Group People Officer at Unibail Rodemco Westfield. Prior to joining URW, Christy served as Executive Vice President and Chief People Officer at Otter Media and previously has held senior leadership positions at Warner Brothers and Accenture. I'd also like to introduce Mustafa El-Rafi, Managing Director at Transform HCM and former, C- uh, former Senior Vice President of um, Majid Al-Futim Retail. He too has had a very prestigious career over the past 30 years and has previously sort of served as Head of Talent at Starbucks um, and other uh, brand name organizations. Uh, Just a reminder to our audience, um, please feel free to post questions in the chat. Uh, We hope to have a very active dialogue, and that can only happen if you share and we share, and we all share together. Um, So let's get started and uh, dig into the research with uh, sort of just a brief overview of the survey. we decided in um, the summer of 2022 that we really needed to, to build off our institute's ex- extensive work on organizational culture. Um, and so we set out to understand what healthy and toxic cultures are doing differently as we emerge from the global pandemic. Uh, we collected survey responses from 960 participants representing 53 countries. Uh, 57% are senior level executives uh, to board members, um, and then another approximately 30% are mid-level managers. So we're talking about very experienced leaders that are uh, answering our survey questions. First, we want to start out with a poll and get a temp check to better understand uh, where the audience is coming from in terms of the culture health uh, at your organizations. Um, so this is a little bit of a different approach to asking the question that we've done before. So we'd love to see how it how it pans out. Um, Take a moment to rate uh, your organizational culture, one through 10, with 10 being the healthiest. 
Um, and uh, we look forward to, to seeing your, your answers. But while you are, are working on that, Christy and Mustafa, um, I would love you guys to talk a little bit about sort of um, cultural traits that are prominent in the regions you represent and, and, and why you think that is the case. Christy, I'll um, start with you. Yeah, I'm happy to jump in. Uh, look, it's a, an absolute pleasure to be here. I'm Christy Karandakar. I, I represent Unibai Redemco Westfield, which is a, a large real estate and investment company where we um, we develop and, and manage significant shopping centers and offices and other assets in, in major urban areas in which we're really focused on the urban regeneration and the sustainability aspects of, of how new construction and even redevelopments are, are impacting our overall communities and societies. Um, I am based out of Paris. Sorry, I'm just going to give myself a little bit of an, <laughs> of an introduction. Here to I was supposed topics. to ask you. That was my bad. Uh, no, I'm, I'm jumping <laughs> so in. Don't worry. Early it's morning. Need more happen. coffee. Thank yeah, you. Thank, no, all, all good. Um, I, as you can probably hear from my accent, I'm American. I do live in Paris. Um, and our, our corporate headquarters are here. I, I spent uh, two and a half years as the head of HR in our uh, over the U.S. and then um, took on the, the global head of HR role in January of last year. Um, so it's about 17, 18 months coming up on at this point. And um, yeah, and I'll also just say for the moment, I'm a huge friend and partner of, of I4CP. I've sat on a variety of different boards over the years and currently sit on the chief HR officer board. So I'm, I'm happy to support and be part of this forum. So John and Catherine, thank you for inviting me and including me. So um, back to your question around, you know, overall you know, organizational culture. You asked about a, a regional question. I don't know if I can answer it that way just because we're a global company, as I'm sure most of you are are part of. And so I, I have to think about this as the lens. And, and honestly, I, I don't think that the answer changes. I think that really putting people at the forefront of your business strategy for me has been something that has transcend has transcended across geography and and corporate cultures and business lines across the board i think that once you you know really understand the nature of your people and that it's their overall um, engagement and their experience working with the company that ultimately will be the decision of whether or not they give you everything that they've got to really be able to build the company that you're trying to build and that you're trying to move forward. So to me, that's the sign of a, of a truly healthy culture is one in which the people are um, genuinely at the forefront and at the core of, of the work that you do. So I would say that number one. Um, I also, you know, personally come from a development and learning background. It's how I grew up, you know, in, in HR and in people. And I think that that's the other big, big motivator that you have a, a culture that is curious and interested and really wanting to develop themselves in the spirit of, of how the, the company grows. People grow, the company grows. And it's one in which, uh, you know, has been the, the keys to success, at least for me. So I have much more thoughts on this. I know we'll get to other things, but maybe I'll I'll give the the floor to Mustafa for a moment. That's Thank a fantastic you, answer, and Mustafa. Yes, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your your background and your journey as well? Thank you. Okay, I'll do the same as well. Um, so good morning and good afternoon, everyone. Um, I have a 33 year 
career in consumer goods, uh, retail, and e-commerce, um, hence the gray hair. I um, worked for Mars Incorporated for 21 years. I started my career in sales, uh, then marketing, uh, and then moved into general management. Um, and as part of my development um, journey, I took a rotation into what we call personnel and organization in those days, or HR. Um, and that's been the sort of second two thirds of my career has been in HR. So I didn't start off in HR. I kind of moved into it uh, more as part of development, but I really enjoyed the experience and uh, continued in that for the last, gosh, um, 18 years or so. Um, I was the head of talent management for Mars Incorporated uh, for several years. Um, then was the head of talent management for Starbucks out of Seattle for several years. Uh, and then took on a, a broader talent management role with QVC out of uh, Philadelphia for a few years. Um, most recently, I was the head of HR for Mesdelfutain Retail. Um, this is the uh, Carrefour license in the Middle East, uh, Africa, and uh, Mediterranean countries. We operated in 17 countries, uh, around 450 hypermarkets, supermarkets, uh, 40,000 people, about $7 billion. So that was my most recent role. Um, there. Um, I'm pretty familiar with this part of the world. I'm from the region originally, although I'm a U.S. citizen, lived and worked in the U.S. I've lived and worked in the Middle East and North Africa for a while. I would say to the question that uh, you've asked, uh, I think the sort of the uh, cultural traits here tend to be more bureaucratic. Uh, I'm generalizing, obviously, it's not for all companies, but there tends to be more bureaucracy, tends to be more hierarchy in this part of the world tends to be uh, probably more silos than collaboration. And I think those are some of the key challenges that many companies in this region face um, as they try and sort of keep up and keep pace with some of their more regional and global competitors. The sort of the healthy culture sort of question would be more around the sort of four or five, I would say, maybe I'm being a little polite there, but um, those are some of the traits that I think uh, are the biggest challenges for these organizations. So hopefully that gives you the introduction and a little bit of context into uh, organizations in this region. Yes, thank you, Mustafa. And I appreciate the realism that you brought to that, that there are definitely challenges, um, uh, and in particularly when you start to compare regional norms. Um, interestingly, you see the poll results here. Um, and if, if you look at this sort of, you got 6% uh, of participants indicating a one, a very unhealthy culture. Um, but most of the responses seem to be sort of mid to, to high level with the no nines and tens. I'm surprised, frankly, um, that we don't have, have, uh, have the healthiest of, of cultures. Nobody here thinks of it. Um, then again, that's why we're here, right? To, to discuss and, uh, and learn from each other and how to, how to improve cultural fitness. Um, I would love for anyone in the uh, audience here um, and to get their take on this next slide here. Um, these are the traits that our research found to be common among the healthiest cultures. Um, so if, if these are traits that are prominently popping up in your employee listening activities, it's a great indication you've got a, a very healthy culture or a healthy uh, pocket uh, within the organization. Um, and how did we come up with these? We, we asked our survey participants to self-assess their culture on a Likert scale, very toxic to very healthy. Um, but we also asked participants to describe their culture traits. Uh, we provided some good and some not so good, uh, all based on I4CP's years of research on organizational culture. 
In fact, we gave them 26 different response options to choose from, including like an other open response option. Um, and we asked uh, participants to select the top five that described their culture. These six had the strongest relationship to the very healthy culture uh, Likert scale that we talked about. So there's, uh, we, we've sort of uh, corroborated here and we think these are offering a very rich picture of what it means to have a fit culture. And so with that in mind, I would love to hear from people in the chat. Do any of these resonate with your uh, your assessment of your organizational culture? You, you've got like an eight or a seven. You know, Do you think these are the ones that would rise to the top if you asked your workforce to sort of describe your organization? Um, would, would love to hear some in the chat about that. But also Mustafa and Christy, both of you have extensive experience building cultures. That's what we're here to talk about today. Um, can you get into how you went about that? What strategies you implemented and, and how, what were the outcomes of that? Christy, uh, maybe you could start us off. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And I actually just want to acknowledge that we're kind of, we're a bit of a smaller group. So I'm happy for people just to come off mute and participate in the in the dialogue if you guys are or if you're if you're comfortable with that. You know, look, I, I started to answer your question before I um I, I so what I mentioned in my my earlier sort of introduction is that I think employee focused, or I called it people focused. I think focusing on on learning and um really being the insight. The other thing that I think is a is an absolute enabler and an uh, and an unlocker of of um, high performance culture is being collaborative. You know, I think that when there are extreme silos and companies and they are withholding or hoarding information, this to me is a is a huge red flag and a sign that it's a very very difficult place to get to. Um, for us, we are we are one hundred percent project based. We are. Um, you know, everyone at some point or another is working on a particular project that involves cross-functional people. They, you know, they they need to work cross geography, cross functional lines, and um, and it's not just about being collaborative. But I would love to see some work on the coordination between people. That's actually been for us. We have collaborative down pack. We talk. We have big big meetings. Everyone's included, which you could touch on the inclusive part, but not, not exactly. It's not exactly what I think is meant there by inclusion. It's the, the coordination piece that I think when you really have a strong, very, very healthy culture, you see that the, the information flows very easily. You see accountability that goes from the start to the end and that there's a real sense of, of team, you know, as they approach the projects and the, and the work, this is something where we've spent a lot of time making sure we can shift from collaboration to coordination and that you really take it to the next level of, of that work together. Um, on the in inclusion side, you know, most of us in our, in our business and Mustafa and I have, you know, he's, he's most recently worked in a very, very similar business. I'll be a different geography as to me. Um, it is, the, the challenges that we're up against are more complex than anybody could have ever imagined. Our businesses have been disrupted to a degree that you never could have, you could have even conceived of in terms of overall risk management. And without a truly diverse perspectives um, contributing to be able to solve the, the issues at hand, you, you are sort of nowhere. And so it's not just about finding the diverse people and perspectives, but creating an environment in which everybody feels truly included and safe to 
share their feedback, empowered to make decisions, and you know, really be part of the the community moving forward. So I'll maybe stop there and I have some thoughts. Ms. Mustafa? Yeah, I, I think I would echo many of the things that you've said, Christy, not to uh, not to sort of repeat too much of that, but I think many of the traits you have over here, Catherine, resonate with me in the in the companies I worked with, I uh, mean Mars and Starbucks specifically, employee focus, inclus inclusivity. Um, collaboration, a learning mindset, and a learning culture were, I think, uh, key components of those uh, of those businesses and what made them, I think, quite successful. Um, I think that those are some of the things I tried to do also in my most recent uh, business with Maginot Fatim. Um, and to Christie's comments, you know, the more you can have uh, transparency, teamwork, sharing information across the organization, the more likely that you're going to have a very healthy culture where people can actually learn from each other and, and support each other. Um, some of the challenges with some of the traits I mentioned of in this part of the world is as a result of more of a sort of the silos and the bureaucracy that gets in the way from the collaboration and gets in the way from that information moving across different parts of the business so that things move a lot slower and that's, you know, leads to the bureaucracy. I think many companies in this part of the world are recognizing this are looking to um, for ways to sort of renovate their culture using your terms um, and trying to become much more agile and uh, you know become much more focused on the uh, employee experience. Something that really in this part of the world has not traditionally been the sort of the primary uh, primary focus. It's been more around the customer or the financials. So uh, these are very much also very relevant traits for where I've worked before and and, and where I've been. Mustafa, just to uh, follow up on that, do you think um, sort of the the trend that has been and 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 emerging, you know, this sort of need to focus more on employees uh, and the employee experience, um, the culture rather less bureau being less bureaucratic, the labor market, um, and everything we've experienced over the past two years, three years, I want to say the tightness of it, has that had anything to do with the change of uh, changing trends that you're experiencing? Absolutely. I mean, I think the pandemic has really sort of been a huge shift because now there is, you know, the war for talent has been around for a long time. I remember hearing that term way back in the early 2000s um, and people have been talking about the war for talent for quite some time. So, but it's even more pronounced now because I think um, employees have a lot more options and they can, you know, they can choose to work for companies that provide a lot more flexibility, whether it's remote or hybrid versus in the office. And I know this is fine. This is a topic that is, you know, we talk about quite a bit. I don't think there is a right or wrong answer. Um, in this part of the world as well, the war for talent has become very, very hot as well. The um, predominantly uh, people used to come to certain places like the UAE and, and, and Saudi where, you know, they would work here because of the, um, because of the very, employment opportunities and the um, uh, the basically the salaries that they offered versus their home countries in Southeast Asia or in Africa. Um, I think the um, as a result, they used to be very careful about how they would go about, um, you know, what they did, and they would be very careful about how they operated because they could lose their jobs at any time. The employment laws here have changed quite a bit. Now it's much more aligned with what you find in Europe and in, in North America. So people have the freedom to move around. And so they're making choices based on the experience, based on whether they're getting the growth opportunities, whether they're being treated with respect and, uh, and dignity and inclusion. And so um, 
it's very much a very hot market. Um, I think it's become more difficult now to attract talent than it maybe was five years ago. Awesome. Fascinating. And culture is going to play a big part in how organizations are able to target and attract the top talent, I'm sure. Um, when we looked at different regions through the lens of fit versus toxic cultures, here's what we found. Um, based on the geographic location of our survey participants, these are the countries and regions we were able to break out with a, a meaningful response number. Um, as John mentioned at the top of the hour, um, we are, you know, this is one of our first regional I4CP webinars, and we'll be doing more of these going forward, which will expand our survey pool. Um, but what this chart shows here are the stark differences between these regions in terms of fit versus unfit cultures. Um, and the EU is most interesting, I think, in that it's nearly split 50 50 um, between the fit and the toxic. And I would love both of your takes on this. Um, what do you make of this? And um, does it support or surprise your expectations, experiences, and so forth? Mustafa? Um, I, I'm not so surprised with the EU. I think maybe having uh, spent quite a bit of time in the UK, people there tend to be quite sort of critical about things and very open about how they feel about it. But obviously, this is broader than the UK. Um, uh, I... Um, you know, you see a lot of strikes and so on happening in multiple countries whenever they're not happy with certain things. So I think they uh, that doesn't surprise me so much. Um, I was actually surprised the U.S. was as positive as it was uh, here on this chart. To be honest with you, Catherine, at 70 percent, I thought that might be a little bit lower. Um, so, you know, given everything I've read and heard, I, I, that number surprised me a little bit. Me too. But you, you Christine? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I obviously got a preview of these slides and I'm smiling. I was smiling when I saw them and I'm smiling and looking at it now. Like, you know, look, I do I believe somehow that like, you know, this is this is not actually a profile of companies, whether they're toxic or fit. This is people's, you know, characteristic of what they perceive and what what they're saying. Right. So do I believe that close to 50 percent of companies in the EU are toxic? No, I don't. I don't. I, I don't at all. I, I think that it is exactly what Mustafa was saying and that. Like, you know, you tend, Europeans tend to be just much more like not only judgmental, but just realistic. You know, they will not tell you that something is amazing and fit unless it like they have real evidence that, you know, there's something and it's this sort of utopian view of, of standard of what you would put up. It's like this perfection marker that no one ever makes, you know, that they're sort of striving for. So I think this is just, I'm sorry to say, like in a characteristic, it's just a very, very cultural view on how people sort of view their surroundings. And if anything, you know, it's a, it's a good reminder for me and that it's, it's, it's hard, you know, for people to walk around and like, feel like, yes, I've had an exceptional employee experience. I'm, I'm living it. And it's not because they're not, it's just that they have a different opinion of, you know, what, what that means and their measuring stick is in a different place. Um, so, you know, look, I'm I'm not surprised by it at all because I I hear it. I think that for those of us that work with the European companies, or if you have a European corporate headquarters, or you're you know in Europe and you're you know working with an American company or a, a different company that's there, you have to just realize that it's it, this is not a reflection that the company somehow is toxic and more, but it's just the way that the employees are are sensing and looking at things around them. 
Mm-hmm. And, and we have a great comment from Charlotte that kind of talks about the on a similar note, she said, this strikes me as a difference in the expectations of people in different locations. I mean, similar mm-hmm. to what you're saying as a, that, you know, you've got a more skeptical, realistic uh, group of participants in Europe um, than perhaps the sort of a hyperbolic, uh, a very optimistic rose-colored glasses wearing, you know, U.S. leaders that answer the survey. Um, and, and Jessica said something interesting too. She said, leadership um, leadership tends to have a different opinion to the culture versus those on the front line. Um, and I absolutely, if we if, if we had addressed and, and um, surveyed frontline workers, that this would be very different, I think, as well. Um, and Caroline agrees with you, Mustafa. She's surprised about the U.S. <laughs> um, so moving on, um, uh, one key finding from the study is that uh, the fitter the culture, the better the financial performance of the organization. Uh, high performance companies, as John defined earlier, by better revenue growth, profitability, market share, and customer satisfaction over a five-year period, um, they are nearly six times more likely to have fit cultures compared to low-performance organizations, according to our data. Um, and it almost seems a bit too obvious uh, that organizations with better market for performance uh, would have better cultures. Um, you know, I, I once pontificated, perhaps it's because they have Beyonce and Beer Cart Fridays. Um, they have all those resources, right? Um, but it's not always the case, is it? Um, I was hoping, Mustafa, you might talk about, in your experience, uh, do healthy cultures always follow in organizations that are successfully growing and expanding revenue? Um, and are financially fit organizations always those with the healthiest cultures? Uh, I think it's, uh, you would expect so, but I think there's pretty well-known examples where that's not the case, I think, Catherine. Um, You know, the ones that came to mind when uh, you were asking this question were around Uber. Um, I think Uber uh, had a tremendous success, but also had significant uh, cultural issues. And uh, they were struggling with a lot of issues around harassment, aggressiveness, just the way that they're they're treating their uh, their people as well and their whole... um, their whole processes. I think things have changed, obviously, recently, but I think they were doing incredibly well as a business because they were a disruptor. Um, they were early, uh, you know, early adopters, and they were changing the uh, the game. And so you were seeing significant uh, growth financially and in terms of valuation, but the culture was toxic and unhealthy in your terms. Um, you know, another one that comes to mind uh, is, and that's changed over the years, is Amazon as well. It was known for its sort of churn and burn. Um, and it was uh, another business that was doing incredibly well, but it was a very difficult culture to work in. And many examples, I think, you know, Wells Fargo is known for the uh, the stories they had around sort of, you know, promoting their incentives uh, ahead of this, of having a, 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 um, a culture that was uh, much more collaborative and, and, and ethical, if I can call it that. So there's plenty of examples of businesses that have been doing well, but haven't had the, the kind of cultural environment that we talk about, you know, the inclusivity, the collaboration, the learning, the employee experience. Yeah, and, and that, that, so true. Um, and one of the things that kind of made us look deeper, actually, is our, so some of those examples that you brought up, Uber, Twitter was in a, another. Um, we, uh, we wanted to find out sort of why we were seeing that correlation uh, between market performance and healthy cultures. Um, and we we did a sort of regression and path analysis using the data. And, and what we found was um, that uh, 
it was actually productivity, sort of a sort of the missing link between culture and market performance. So we asked survey participants to uh, evaluate various workforce outcomes at their organization over the past two years and how those have improved or um, you know worsened. And one of the questions was about productivity. Um, and so when you look at the the path analysis and the relationships, you really see that culture has a very strong influence on productivity, which then has a very strong influence on market performance, um, which you know makes sense. In, in in a very strong culture, you have you know obviously uh, higher performance levels, but um, you know increased discretionary effort as well. Um, and and so those you know thinking about productivity as the missing link, you could almost look at culture and evaluating your culture as a as a proxy uh, for productivity at your organization and how that's doing. I'm happy um, to yeah, yeah. give a comment on that. Look, I, I remember, well, I'm dating myself, so bear with me here, but you know, the, the old Peter Drucker culture eat strategy for breakfast, uh, I, I just think we're so we're beyond that at this point. And what we're realizing is that really the, the the driver is productivity and where people choose to spend their time and more importantly, where people choose to spend their discretionary effort. And it's true that, yes, okay, so you have to provide a culture and experience for people in which they feel rewarded and acknowledged and motivated and engaged and all the things that we are, you know, doing day in and day out. At the same time, it's those very specific nuances of some of the elements that you showed earlier that really make a fit and healthy culture, like clarity and communication and consistency. You could be working a lot, but not on the right things. And in a good, strong, healthy culture, fit culture, you are constantly communicating around the right targets, giving direction, providing feedback. It's the vision, not the minutia of like every small task. And so it's why you could be productive. It's the same. I have the same you know, answer to Mustafa's question. Those, those examples that he shared are the right ones. And there's many, many others that we are all familiar with. It's not the people we're not, you know, they're working and they were productive also, but it's how they were being productive and how they were being engaged and how they were being motivated and really with the clarity of what were the right results and being inspired to be able to get to use that productivity in the right way. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? It does. And, and and just a full circle going back to your the Peter Drucker quote. I mean, isn't it so much of so much of what you just talked about is strategy. It's talent strategy. And that has to be a key part of the business equation these days. Absolutely. Um, so the unfortunate reality is nearly a third of organizations we surveyed reported toxic cultures. Um, our research found that uh, people who work in toxic organizations also describe their culture traits in very similar ways. Uh, the following nine traits were cited much more often by those who describe their workplaces as toxic. Um, we did some regression analysis controlling for market performance and size and any one of these nine traits explains anywhere between 15 and 22% of how toxic participants rated their culture. So um, there's sort of an escalating, uh, you know, self-perpetuating effect there. Um, these, along with the six traits that we mentioned at the top of the hour, can be used in organizational listening strategies. So again, if you're hearing these bubble up within your employee listening strategies, it's a really good flag that you've got a, a problem um, or, you know, a, a, at least a toxic pocket within the organization. Um, so Christy, I'm curious, how would you encourage feedback from employees and use it to gather employee input 
Um, how do those insights tend to drive organizational change? Can you speak to that? Yeah, happy to. You know, look, I you know, I think we're we're doing the the housekeeping that probably <clears throat> sorry everybody is doing around culture and pulse surveys and wanting you know on, at least on an annual basis we call it a pulse survey that was meant to be much more often than that. But I think that that's you know number one is that we've got some sort of formality that we can measure from year to year to be able to understand really how the the culture is transforming and to be able to look at that in all different facets by geography by function. Uh, by leadership level to really understand what's happening. That's kind of our, our main driver. In addition to that, we are, um, because we, we're, we're a big company in terms of size and scale of our, of our businesses, we're a very small company, in my opinion, you know, just under 3,000 employees that I really feel like, because I've been a part of much, much larger organizations that I can wrap my arms around this, you know, employee base. And so we do... Um, we, we we favor presence in person. We we encourage our managers to talk. We when we're looking at our management development, we have an entire piece on how to conduct your weekly one-on-ones that incorporate a piece that's really checking in and making sure that the the individual is is you know on the right track, is doing the right thing, and that time could be spent in terms of gathering input and data in which we have a process within our people teams across the regions in which they can collect that information. Or if there's nothing of substance to talk about in terms of their feedback on a weekly basis, it's how are we tracking on their, you know, their overall evolution and what does their career trajectory look like? And so there's time that we really help to enable managers to spend that time, not just on the task of the moment, but how do they really like think about the individual that that's working for them and how they need to get that. So I think those are the the primary sources, some things that we're interested in, and one that I I actually learned about last year at the I4CB conference, not this year, that I'll I'll mention, which I still think is so fantastic, and I want to figure out a way to do it. There's another company that was doing a um, an anniversary survey. So every year on the employee's anniversary, they would send them a, a fully disclosed non non anonymous survey that says happy anniversary. We're so delighted that you're still here, which is another big win because you've noticed and you've made it really personal for them. And, uh, you know, at this moment, we appreciate that you may be thinking about your time here and your career, and we would love your thoughts. And so it's the moment in which they collect that information. And they they stated that they went from like um, 40, 30, 40 percent um, participation rate in filling out surveys to like 80, 90% of people were filling it out and really giving that feedback and felt like it was okay to be really personal. And we were asking them directly or the company was asking. So it's a strategy that I'm looking to potentially implement. I have to figure that out in a couple different Yeah. So Catherine, ways. can I jump in with a couple of examples yeah, as well? Please. I mean, I, this is kind of going back a little bit to my Starbucks days, but at a Mac, there's micro and micro examples. At the macro level, one of the things that struck me while I was there, that um, Starbucks had a great way of crowdsourcing uh, input from the organization. And so whether there were some, some key things that they were asking, um, they would open it up and everybody would sort of respond. And then they, but people would vote on the sort of the responses they felt that they were the most relevant or resonated the most with them. So this was a great way to sort of get input from the organization in terms of what's the best way to address this issue or to uh, even sort of change the, the recipe of a certain product, if you will. It went everything from sort of product to uh, the policy. 
which is really, really interesting. And it was very much inviting. And, you know, you got the inclusivity there. At the micro level, they had a, a tremendous ritual, which was all around the coffee tasting. And so every team would get together on a weekly basis and go through a coffee tasting. It did a couple of things. One, it reinforced the importance of product knowledge and, and being, you know, understanding what you're all about, which is coffee. And so every member of a team would, on a weekly basis, have to present at the brew the coffee and and get the coffee tasting session for their colleagues and then talk about the coffee and its uh, where it was sourced from and its flavor traits and everything else. And you went through the whole sensory tasting and smelling and um, which was tremendous. But at the same time, then they would talk about some of the key issues of that week, you know, or what was said at the recent town hall, any reactions. And I just thought those are great examples where you're just constantly connecting with people, both at the macro at the micro level. Um, we also used to run pulse surveys, even at Measure of Tame. You know, if we had certain issues, we'd run small little pulse surveys, three or four questions on a frequent basis, just to see whether we were making traction and moving the needle uh, and, and getting a sense of sentiment of where people were on those issues. So there's lots of different things you can do um, that not only just give you a great listening strategy, but also help you to reinforce values and what's important at the company level too. I, so I'm so happy that both of you uh, had a chance to talk because there's three really important like strategies that we could all take away and, and try and experiment with at our organizations. And um, Christy, I loved connecting the, the anniversary milestone to um, the survey. I think that's a fantastic time um, to collect input and also just make sure they feel valued and, um, you know, they want to give feedback then because they, they, um, they are, they, they're, they're tenured, you know, they've got experience to share. Um, and Mustafa, the coffee tasting is just also a great way to connect to the brand and the purpose of the organization too, while that is happening, while those, that communication, um, and feedback is, is getting collected. And I think that is like, it's a double duty. Um, that is awesome. So, um, I'm glad that we, we have some takeaways, definitely, as part of this call. We'll, I'm sure we'll get more gems as we go through. Actually, um, Catherine, I just want to jump in. I'm, I'm just reading yeah. the chat. We've got some Thank great you. comments. Carrie, great observation about, you know, this is a good example of combining employee listening and um, employee experience. Um, I, I totally agree with that. Um, Jessica would add uh, lack of transparency and direction. And Danver asked a, an interesting question. Where would uh, hoarding um, fit in that list of uh, toxic traits? That is a great question. Um, you know, I, I suspect it could be a consequence of a variety of these, um, complacent, hierarchical, bureaucratic come to mind. Um, but uh, interesting to note, our data found um, that internal mobility um, was actually a, um, a very powerful explanatory factor. So it helped influence uh, culture health. Um, and so you know, organizations that aren't holding, you know, that, that are not hoarding talent, excuse me, um, that are strategically helping employees either laterally or, or, or move up, um, that has a great cultural effect. But I would love to hear from Christy or Mustafa on that, too. You know, um, among these these negative traits here, what do you think is the most likely to hoard uh, talent? Yeah, I didn't actually read it as hoarding talents. I'm trying to go back and look at it. I thought that maybe it was about information. It is. It's about information. So I would, about hoarding information and, and hoarding talent, but hoarding information, I would say in my mind, really comes under the cutthroat nature. To me, typically you see that people do this for political reasons and you see a very toxic political environment typically when you 
find people that, that the knowledge is power somehow, that if they have the information and others don't, that that preserves their their stature, their, you know, the positioning of themselves, the longevity of themselves, and they're not really thinking about, you know, how that information is necessary and needed for others. Yeah. Knowledge. Yeah, go ahead. No, no. I, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, to some extent, I agree with that as well. You know, the one that was um, I was focused on was around non-inclusive. I guess we all look at these words in slightly different contexts, but for me, it's it's also that not sort of including my colleagues and and my yeah, the rest of my peers in terms of what I know and and, and you know, what I could share with them. So I thought non-inclusivity also would would speak towards that. And then Caroline wants to add micromanaging as well, which might fit under some of those. Um, absolutely. Um, and we're going to get into, I think, the importance of leadership and leaders in, in influencing a cultural health. And I think that's an important connection between leadership strategies and micromanaging and so forth. Um, so the key finding in which we're going to focus the rest of our time together on is that uh, the healthy habits of high performance organizations. Uh, with study participants were asked how their cultures changed over the course of the pandemic. Most, 43%, reported that culture improved, which is great. Um, but, you know, like like athletes, right, this didn't happen by accident. And we talked about the strategy that's uh, important in driving the healthy culture. Um, so we're going to talk about the seven habits of very healthy cultures that surfaced from our research. And I will break these um they're, they're here, right? They're, we're listed. We're going to go through uh, one by one um, here. The first one may not seem like something you can cultivate as a habit. Uh, organizations with the healthiest cultures were far more likely to have boards that placed high importance on culture. Um, and having a board that prioritizes culture isn't necessarily something you can kind of control, right? Um, but there are strategies and ways that you can influence. Um, and I would love Mustafa or Christy, if you could uh, talk about, you know, how do you convince leadership about the importance of culture and build a business case for a culture strategy? Christy. I'm not sure I'm the right one to start with this one. To be honest, I've been very, very fortunate, especially over the last couple of years. Earlier in my career, and I didn't go over my background, you, you talked about it a bit, like being in entertainment was a, a different kind of beast. But in the last few years, I, I, I don't know, I've been very fortunate that our, our leaders have been um, acutely aware of the pressures on talent. They have you know, turnover just like everybody else has been at an all-time high rate because people seem to have options or are choosing different kinds of environments to go on. And so we have leaders more than ever before really coming to the table saying, help me be a stronger leader, help me understand how to build something special within my team. And they're seeing that employees are demanding it, honestly. Like we, you know, if if we're going to maintain a, a very um, top heavy, top talent driven culture, which we have, um, it is imperative that we are delivering an experience to them day to day that is is fulfilling. And so it this has not been a, a big issue for me. Bigger is like, okay, how do I get you there? Because it's not, <laughs> you don't necessarily wake up and think about the right things to do. And I can give very like various, various examples, but I've not really been met with any resistance, even when I've come with really tough messages on like, you're not doing this right. Like, let me help you. And people have been very, very open to it. I want, I want to just, so sorry that I'm not, I'm not able to do it in the past. I can comment, but I really think the world is different right now. 
Um, I want to talk a little bit about the board and something creative I did. You know, I there are boards, and I found that that are more culture focused. Again, this is something that I think um, the boards are much, much more acutely keen to to ask, to inquire, to understand that this is an, an element certainly far more than they have ever been in the past. Um, I I do I I approach our board just like I do with um, leaders at all levels, which is like you go where the energy is. So if I happen to give a presentation on our, you know, overall talent data, or I'm looking at, over, you know, compensation, or I'm doing something that is a, you know, a normal thing that I'm presenting. And I happen to get questions a lot on a very like specific element that shows me that there's members of our board that are interested. I've invited them to have lunch with me. I've invited to talk offline outside of a meeting. And I think that this goes back to like your overall HR's overall relationship with the board, which I think is really, really important. And I, and to me, the, the deeper those conversations happen outside of the, just those presentations or trying to push an agenda topic, you know, in and really building an authentic relationship has been a, a more successful pathway for me. And that makes a lot of sense. It's a great approach. Mustafa. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things I, I think I don't, know that I've spoken to any leader or CEO who hasn't just, you know, intuitively said, no, culture isn't important. I think everyone, they all recognize that culture is important. I think the uh, challenge been the challenge has been sort of what do we mean exactly by culture? It's a kind of big, it's a small world for so many things. Uh, and, and how do we translate that into tangible things that we could address? And then how do we go about addressing it? You know, that's been typically the, for the challenge. Um, and I think in the past, you know, we would default or people would default to engagement surveys and engagement scores and saying, okay, if our engagement score is X, then, you know, we've got a healthy culture. I think that's only one aspect of things. So it hasn't been too, it hasn't been difficult to convince leaders that we need to focus on culture. I think the challenge has been more about how do we actually start and where do we start? Um, and I think a lot of that, the way I've, I've been able to do it is by bringing very tangible examples. Like, you know, we say we, we want to be agile and we all, you know, we say, well, yes, something we all agree with, we want to be agile as an organization and say, okay, then how come we need to have eight signatures on this document and it takes four weeks to, to get it done? I think when you give examples like that, people go, oh, okay, now I get what you're saying. All right, we need to sort of look at those processes and then how do we change them uh, to make them, you know, to be in line with the sort of culture we want to have because ultimately, that's what our that's what our employees are looking at. They hear you say one thing, and then they look at the processes and they look at what you actually value. And if those two things aren't in uh, uh, congruent with each other, then they don't believe what's being said. And that goes to your point here, which I think leaders lead by examples. And ultimately, I've I've seen a lot of leaders talk about how it's important to sort of, we live these values and we have this culture, but they don't role model that. So it's incredibly important. And I've I, in my time I've called out leaders and my colleagues. We're not leading by example. Um, you know, those have been difficult conversations, but that's, I think, what we need to do. What I love about some of the work that, uh, you know, I4CP has done recently is create this blueprint uh, that can help people translate how do we actually go about addressing culture. Um, so it gives you something a bit tangible to follow, if you will, versus just a sort of, a, hey, we need to get started. Where do we start? What do we work on? So, uh, I think that's been the challenge, at least I've faced this less about the sort of we don't believe in it. It's just where do we start and what do we tackle? Mm -hmm. 
And, and you referenced those 18 steps. Uh, that's uh, our, our CEO, Kevin Oaks, wrote a great book. To, uh, 2021 is when it came out um, on culture renovation. And it's got 18 actionable steps that you can take and uh, fantastic storytelling. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. Um, the second healthy habit that we want to get into is, uh, is um, uh, excuse me, I'm having, um, there we go. All right, maximal flexibility. Um, so we found that organizations that have workforces um, that are more remote um, tended to have better well-being. Um, they tended to have healthier cultures. And um, we've done extensive research at I4CP on work models, and um, flexibility is now a strategy. It's one of the top questions candidates are asking uh, potential employers about what kind of flexibility do you provide. There are a variety of ways to provide flexibility, even to on-site employees um, via scheduling and technology um, and, and employee experience. Um, so I would love to ask both Christy and Mustafa, um, you know, the modern workforce continues to evolve. Um, where do you see or hear, you know, work arrangements going? What's going on in your organization? Um, and what's the right solution between employees want for flexibility and leaders need for, you know, on-site or collaborative, innovative, uh, in-person activities? Um, I mean, I can get started, if you will, if you want to. This was, gosh, during the, just as we we're coming out of a pandemic, this was such a huge topic of discussion and debate um, and so many different points of view around the table. Um, you know, we went back to, once again, data and said, look, it's from how we managed to navigate ourselves through a, a really, really challenging environment. And we didn't lose uh, our business, you know, and we, our employees were engaged. OK, there were some pros and cons along the way. So uh, remote does work. So why do we have to bring everyone back into the office? Um, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of underlying issues that are related to that. Maybe, you know, trust is, is part of it. Maybe, that, you know, we're not used to working this way until I see people in front of me and, and I know that they're there. I think where we ended up is around a hybrid model, which is um, part work from home and uh, work from anywhere um, and work from the office. In fact, when we talked about work from home, push the boundary towards work from anywhere because uh, in some of our roles, we had software developers where quite honestly, it didn't really matter where they, what country they were in, right? Um, they could, as long as they're working on code, connecting with their team members, they could get work done. That opened up another set of questions like how do we handle taxes and legislation and all that wonderful stuff. So, you know, there's a lot of things for HR to try to navigate its way through. We ended up with a, uh, with a hybrid model um, I think one of the most important things we got out of our discussion was what's the role of the workplace? And, you know, the role of the workplace should be for people to connect, to meet, and to sort of, you know, exchange ideas, discuss issues. Um, that really should be what we should be setting up versus people coming in, sitting in a cube or sitting in an office and, you know, not talking to each other. So uh, one positive thing that came out of that was bidding to sort of redesign our office environment so it was much more um, creative towards creating that type of environment for connectivity and connection. And we try to encourage people to have, to use more of the office time for connections and for for face-to-face -face meetings with cross-functional team members versus, you know, coming in and just sitting at your desk. We also recognize that some people actually really wanted to come and sit at their desk and not work from home, you know, so we need to have that degree of understanding and, and flexibility. So my personal opinion is that I think hybrid 
is is the sort of the way it's going to be. But it's also going to vary by company, uh, by the nature of the work that you do and the nature of a role that you have as well. Christy? Yeah, look, I, I, um, I want to tag off of what Mustafa just said at the one of the latter pieces around the, the purpose of the office and it really being for connection. For us, our core mission as a business is about reinventing how people are together. And, you know, that, that's defined more in the public of how people shop, work, live, play, you know, together. And, and that's our, our core business. We view it very much the same internally, of course, you know, our shopping centers in large in most countries were shut down for a period of time, so in some cases, long periods of time. And, you know, we were not able to be together. And there was a real need to come back together. I, and that doesn't mean that our employees not, you know, don't have the same flexibility desires or not, you know, trying to strive that balance that I think everybody is, you know, in a completely different world than we were three years ago, you know, trying to strive. And so, for us, we are, you know, really heavy dominant. Look, we are an in-person culture. We are an office culture. We are one in which we truly believe that what we we build together is better when we're together in presence. That does not mean that we are not providing flexibility and we're not in a hybrid work situation and we're not being um, able for people to you know, really have and achieve the level of flexibility that they are looking for in terms of doing their work. That being said, our work really functions much better when it's, when it's together. And, you know, we're, for us, it's really thinking about this whole um, concept of why, you know, even in a shopping center, people can, can shop online. They're choosing to come back. There's been so much over the last decade around how, you know, shopping were to go completely digital. We have seen that people want that physical experience. They want to come into the assets. We are seeing that the, the footfall and traffic in our centers is increased over what it was, you know, a couple of years ago. So people are absolutely coming back. People, you know, humans, it's human nature that you want that connection, the, the importance of bringing your senses together. There's so much like psychological need that's in there that when you sit at home, you know, we're seeing that it's not that our, we don't trust our people. It's not that they're as productive. Like this conversation needs to get off the table. It's really not what we're talking about. It's truly about the brain power and connection and collaboration and coordination that we talked about in the beginning, that we are much, much better suited when we are together in presence doing that. And we believe that it's good for everyone. It's good for our business. It's good for our people individually. And with that, there's a win-win success of making sure that we can strike that right balance and, you know, ensure that we can continue to work together in the engaged way that we thrive. You know, that that's what works for us in our business. Thank you for listening to this episode of I4CP's Next Practices Weekly podcast. I encourage you to join us live for these discussions each Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific time, so that you can ask questions of our guests and co-hosts and participate in the conversation. Just go to i4cp.com forward slash events to register. We hope you'll keep tuning in as I4CP brings you more great HR executives to discuss how high-performance organizations are leveraging best and next practices in HR. Thank you, and we hope you have a great and productive week ahead.